Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. Yeah, the mind plays a major role in, in all success stories. The mind is a major factor. And the mind is a major factor in preparation. You have to be willing to go beyond the threshold of pain that you feel as you train. You have to be able to go beyond that. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. Please forgive the background noise. I'm in a hotel lobby in San Diego for work right now. I'm actually checking over my shoulder to make sure I don't see my boss. But it looks like we're good. My guest today, folks, is a real pioneer, Bobby Douglas. As a wrestler, he was a two-time Olympian, 1964 and 1968. He was also a two-time world medalist. And by the way, he never lost to Dan Gable as a wrestler. He beat him several times, including the 1968 Olympic team trials. And then as a coach, he was the first African-American to coach a D1 program, UC Santa Barbara, RIP to that program. And then ASU, and he led Arizona State to a national title in 1988, which is unbelievable when you consider that this was during the Iowa stranglehold on college wrestling. And then, of course, he coached the great Kale Sanderson at Iowa State, along with many others, Joe Heskett, Chris Bono, Nate Gallick, the list goes on. I mean, just an unbelievable figure in wrestling, and it was a real honor to have him on the show. Before we get into it, you know the drill. It's fan of the week time. This one goes to Coach Castro. That's at Davey Dave underscore four on Twitter. An NAIA national champ representing the 419. Thank you, my friend. Greatly appreciate you tuning in. Also, quick reminder, if you're listening to this, please subscribe to the show if you haven't done so already. Okay, let's give it up for Coach Bobby Douglas. Peace. Here with Coach Bobby Douglas. Coach, why don't we just start with your uh, your childhood, kind of where you grew up and what life was like for you there. I, I was born in Bel Air, Ohio. Um, that's that's a, uh, a city on the Ohio River. Uh, across the river is uh, Wheeling, West Virginia. Uh, Wheeling, West Virginia was famous for its slave market. Uh, Bel Air, Ohio is a um it's a coal mining steel mill uh city uh, 
its population has dwindled down to very, very few people. It's one mile south of uh, Bridgeport, Ohio, uh, one mile south of uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, um, two miles from, two miles north of Powhatan, Ohio, on the Ohio River. The towns that you might know about are Martins Ferry, Steubenville, Weirton, uh, and then going south, Marietta. On the other side of the Ohio River would be Wheeling, West Virginia, and uh, uh, Moundsville. Moundsville is famous for the penitentiary. Okay. And then Warwood, and on up to Weirton, West Virginia. That was a slave trading area uh, in the colonial days, and uh, was dominated by uh, uh, the Powhatan Indians. The uh, the uh, I can't remember all the names of the tribes, but it was a, a, a location where many of the Native American tribes um, settled on that Ohio River area. And so that's uh, that's kind of the environment you were around. And then I know at a certain point you went to live with your grandparents, um, and that's where you kind of found out that your, uh, your great-grandfather, I don't know if it was Ash is the name of him, or if that's a, more of a, a tribal thing. But he was a wrestler in the Sudan, I believe. Tell us about that story. The, the, I heard stories about him. He, the stories that I heard, he was referred to as Ash, but they were stories that I heard as a as an infant uh, about uh, Africa, and I did some research on on the area, and it's it's an area that is known as Nuba and um, the tribes were uh, were wrestling tribes and uh, I don't know if they they exist anymore but um, they were they were the source of many of the uh, slave traders because of their physique they were very large large people and um, one of the one of the people from that area is Manute Bolt basketball player you know he's over seven feet tall and i heard stories about uh, about these giants that uh, were wrestlers and many of the stories go all the way back to the egyptian tombs and um, inside the egyptian tombs are larger than life-size drawings of african wrestlers wrestling and um so that was fascinating to me. I did a lot of research and have done a lot of research on um, wrestling in Africa. Wrestling in Africa is uh, probably the most uh, most act, most famous activity that uh, that the natives took part in. The males and females wrestled. Hmm. It's a fascinating history. The, the book to read is The Last of the Nuba. N-U-B-I-A, okay. that will give you a lot of history. And the people of the Codafon. Okay, I'll look into that because I'm fascinated by history. I was a history major in college, and I know you're a historian as well. And so this is kind of the, you're, you're growing up hearing these stories, and at, at the time, maybe you thought they were just folklore, maybe not, but it turns out to be true. And so you've had wrestling in your in your family for for years and so 
you know, once you went to live with your grandparents, when did you first get involved with organized wrestling? Well, let me just say, The People of Ka is a book that you want to get. The People of Ka tells a lot about the history of the area. Okay. I got involved in wrestling at a very, very young age out on the grass with my grandfather and the coal miners. The coal miners used to gather and uh, drink wine. Um, they made wine, and on occasions like Thanksgiving and uh, Christmas time, they would gather uh, together and um, drink wine. And the, they oftentimes there were kids with them. I used to go with my grandfather, and we would wrestle. Uh, that was we were poor, so that was one of the few activities that didn't cost anything. And um, it was um, it was kind of a routine on, on the holidays. If there weren't wasn't snow on the ground, if it wasn't raining or it wasn't cold, the miners would get together and. Um, celebrate together and drink wine and so you literally started just wrestling in the grass and you know you mentioned you grew up poor i think it's hard for people to realize what the situation was actually like i mean i've heard stories that you at a young age were digging through the snow just to find a piece of coal to heat the house i mean could you just kind of elaborate on what that was like for you that was true my uh, the coal miners had uh, had gone out on a strike and uh, we didn't we didn't have any money. We were just living off of uh, canned goods that uh, my grandmother had canned during the summer. She had a garden, and um, the garden was our source of food for for a long time. And my grandfather got ill and uh, passed away, and it was difficult for us. Uh, our neighbors shared some of their food with us, and uh, it was just a tough time for my family, but it wasn't just my family. All the coal miners, the kids, uh, had a difficult time. There were uh, there was a Polish and black community, some uh, Slavs, some Yugoslavians, uh, but mostly uh, Eastern Europeans. Very, there were a few Italians, but not very many. And uh, it was a it was a mixed community um we we had we had a uh, a um a unique experience as kids because of the diversity of the, our community uh some of the some of the people i still am friends with Berlinski, talarchex um there there are some people that uh, um, I continue to stay in touch with. We were all wrestlers, too. Berlinski's uh, from a family of wrestlers. Talarchik's family of wrestlers. And my family's name was Davis, not Douglas. I was raised, my father's name was Douglas, and I took his name, but I was part of the Davis clan. Because the Eastern Europeans and then the miners, they were all kind of in the same socioeconomic status. Was there the the kind of race issues that you saw throughout the rest of the country or because you guys were all kind of in it together, it wasn't like that until you went to other places? No, we we had the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, some clans members lived next to us. Oh, my God. Uh, we lived in the community, and we they burned crosses, and 
uh, I can recall seeing them burn a cross and the, the people start shooting at the crosses and down they they were up on a hillside burning crosses and we were down in the valley more or less and uh the people start shooting at the crosses and shooting at the people that were up on the crosses and um, we had we had our issues i can't even imagine what's that like what that's like to experience as a kid and then you know eventually you found you know organized wrestling and you had a, a coach in high school that would be like a father figure to you um was it George? Co- George Kavalik. George Kavalik. Kavalik. Yeah. Seems yeah, like a pretty important guy to your life. Uh, perhaps the most important male figure in my life. Uh, I still am in touch with the family. Uh, his son came to wrestle for me uh, at Arizona State, and um, his son's a doctor now. I, I speak to his wife on a regular basis. She's uh, now starting to go downhill. She has some memory problems, and uh, age is um, taking away a lot of her energy. So she, she does, we don't talk as much as we used to, but we communicate. We've been communicating ever since I was in high school, and she's been like a mother to me, and um, I, I love her dearly. She's uh, very, very precious to our family and so what what was so significant about that relationship i mean because a lot of people have coaches but like what about uh that relationship was so impacting to you and like how did it translate into wrestling well uh i never had a father figure other than my grandfather who passed away when i was like nine or ten years old and so george kavalik Filled a tremendous void in um, in my life because he took on that role. He treated me like one of his family. He, he treated he, he he treated everybody um, with respect, but I felt like he treated me special. And uh, I, I didn't have a male uh, around to do that, so I, I gravitated toward him. And I, he also I was able to perform. For him, I mean, I I, uh, I I was willing to work a lot harder, and I think he was the reason why I worked so hard. I wanted to be, I wanted to be the best, and um, he stressed that you should always try to be the best you can be, and I and that's what I tried to do. And you definitely definitely did that, winning state twice, and then you know I thought it was interesting that this this coach years went on to be a coach at an NAIA school and you went to wrestle for him there. Was he doing both jobs, high school and college at that time? Or did he just, was he just doing college? No, he, no, he was just doing, he was hired by West Liberty state college as a football coach. And, uh, I, I was also a uh, football player running back at, at Bridgeport high school. And when he got the job at West Liberty state college, which is West Liberty university now, uh, I went with him and, uh, he started a wrestling program at West Liberty university and, uh, uh, took a team in its second, I think it was second year. We finished in the, um, top 15 in, in the nation. It was an NAIA tournament at the time. 
which was uh, the NAI tournament. The first three weight classes were the NCAA champions, and many of the All-Americans came out of the NAIA. Gray Simons, Freddie Powell, those are two of the most memorable people, including myself and uh, Bucky Mon. Uh, Bucky Mon was a national champion. Freddie Powell was a national champion. Grace Simons was a national champion. I was a national champ. So there's a lot of uh, good wrestlers that ca- came out of that. As a matter of fact, the NAI dominated the first three weight classes of the NCAA tournament. So that's kind of a, a short history on it. But uh, uh, George Kovalik was unique in that uh, – he was an educator first, uh, and he uh, he stressed the importance of education to all of our athletes, and um, he stressed education to all of our athletes. And uh, my goal wasn't to be a coach; my goal was to be a school teacher, and uh, I wanted to be like George Cavall. Like I wanted to be a teacher first, then a coach. And, uh, I always considered myself a much, much better teacher than I was a coach, and I was fortunate enough to have had uh, George Kovalik as my mentor because uh, you learned how to how to coach because of the uh, the role the teaching played in my education, and education was always stressed by uh, George Kovalik, and I, I, I agreed with him. So it must have been a really tough conversation to have when you decided to transfer to Oklahoma State then. That was that was very, very, very difficult. Very difficult. I I I uh I didn't have the courage to to say goodbye to him. I just left. And um he called me when I he heard that I had gone. And uh we had a very emotional conversation and he wished me well in the end uh, I, I could I could hear his uh, hear him tearing up as he as we said goodbye that that was a difficult but I, I I knew that I could not make the Olympic team and be a world champion uh, if I stayed at West Liberty State College I could have gotten my degree and I could have continued to play football uh, I could have continued to wrestle and I would have probably gotten a chance to try out with um, the Pirates. And Joe Necro was one of my um, little league um, teammates, Phil Necro and Johnny Havlicek. So I came out of a, a, a storied athletic community. Uh, those names, Jopko, those are all famous Havlicek. athletes. Yeah, so. I know that name. Yeah, well... Um, there, there are some other Galloway, Joey Galloway's from the area. Um, Jerry West is from the area. Wow. Um, and uh, Mazeroski, uh, baseball player from the area. Um, and there were there were a lot of great baseball players that never got to the pros. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, it was an area that was full of great athletes, and uh, I was really fortunate to have come out of that area. But we had our problems. Uh, it was we were all poor. We were we were the coal miner kids and the steel mill kids, and 
no one really had very much other than a few people and um, our our income a lot of our income came from running numbers and bootlegging whiskey that was the type of community that i was raised in and um, that's that community now does not exist I, when you go through there all those uh, famous names and famous people are gone were you running the numbers as a young kid I carried the numbers to uh, for my grandparents. Yeah. Wow. What a. <clears throat> it's interesting to hear that so many great athletes came from that area. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the genes. Uh, there were some. <laughs> there were coal miners, and uh, <laughs> coal miners were physical people. Uh, steel mill workers. Steel mill workers are physical people. Farmers. Farmers are physical people. So there were a lot of physical people that came out of that area. And uh, as a result, the, the, there was a war that had just uh, was taken place in the, during my early years. And a lot of those soldiers came back from the war and uh, brought with them uh, many of the uh, American military traditions. And, and uh, they were just hard working, tough, tough American uh, people. America is great because of the work ethic and the toughness of the American people. Not very many places has the type of diversity, and that diversity makes America very, very unique. Mm -hmm. The Native American blood the African blood mixed in with the European blood has produced a, a hybrid called an American. Yeah, it's interesting to look at it like in that in that lens. That um, you know, really, it is just a, a big melting pot, and that's that's kind of the place you grew up in. And you know, even though it was the Midwest, it was a, a very diverse town because of that. And so you have all these you know life experiences that are kind of with you and. You know, when did you, when you were still wrestling in college for your high school coach, when did you decide that your goal was to be an Olympic or world champion? I, I was motivated by uh, Jesse Owens. I, I heard him speak, and he talked about the Olympics, and I, I was I was mesmerized by it. And I started doing some research, and I got to the Greeks, and I was I was fascinated by the Greek culture and. Uh, and then they started talking about the Olympics and the Olympians, and um, that just motivated me more. And um, then when I started wrestling, I realized the connection, the historic connection between wrestling and man and God and um, the history uh, of so many, many great nations have been built on the backs of wrestlers, America being the number one nation. And then you look at the Mongols, the Russians, the Chinese, the Japanese, the uh, Koreans, uh, and then the Native Americans. The Native Americans have been wrestling since the beginning of times. And um, all those different great civilizations have been built on the backs of wrestlers. And the military connection between 
the wrestler and civilization is very, very unique. Every great civilization has been built on the backs of wrestlers, including America. Yes, indeed. Now we're talking. And so you hear Jesse Owens, you start to get this concept of the Olympics. And then, you know, I didn't realize when you left your coach that you didn't tell him. So like, what time of year was this? Was this like the summer or like when did Oklahoma State reach out and how did all that come to be? Um, in 1963, I went to Europe and wrestled for on the, I made the national team in 1963. I went to West Point and, uh, I, um, I wrestled off for uh, a spot on the American team and I got beat by Tom Huff. And, um, I, 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 in freestyle. And so I, I transferred from freestyle and went into the Greco Roman wrestle offs. And I won the spot, the American spot, uh, on the world team. And I went to Europe, uh, with the Greco Roman team on the longest road trip of any American team. We were gone for a month and a half overseas. And it was the, it was a experience of a lifetime, but it was the most difficult thing I'd ever done. I got injured several times. And then I wrestled in the world championships and in, in Greco Roman, that was an experience, but seeing Europe and the devastation of the war and the attitude of the people toward Americans and the poverty, the cruelness that I saw in those communist countries was just absolutely amazing. Um, it's a whole nother story, but that trip was the longest recorded American road trip. And it is, still is today. <laughs> we were gone for, I don't know how many days, probably over 30 days we were gone, over a month. And uh, Did you fly or boat over there? We flew over to, uh, to uh, Germany. And then we went from Germany to um, Scandinavia. And then the team divided. The freestylers went to England. The, the Greco-Roman wrestlers went to Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. And Greece. Greece. And then we met back in England, we, 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 no, we met back in Scandinavia and then we went from Scandinavia to England and then from England back home. That was, um, wow. The longest recorded American wrestling trip in history. So you and, saw, go ahead. Uh, that experience prepared me for the world championships in freestyle and the Olympic games. I made the Olympic team after that twice. I was in shape after that trip for the next three or four years. So that was a big turning point in your life. That trip, it sounds like 
it was the greatest rest, the greatest, the greatest wrestling experience that I ever had, the toughest experience I ever had, the most rewarding experience that I ever had. And, um, hard to explain what, when you, when you think of poverty and when you think of cruelness, I saw, I saw poverty. Um, worse than what you experienced as a kid. Uh, as bad and worse in some cases, the, the way those Europeans treated the gypsies was unbelievable cruelty. I saw soldiers hitting kids and kicking kids and I interfered. I, I could have gotten shot in Bulgaria where, uh, Bulgarian, um, soldier was kicking some Jewish or, uh, a, a, um, a gypsy kid and I ran over and I was just a kid. I ran over. I didn't, I was raised. You don't see men kicking kids. I ran over and grabbed the kid and started scolding the soldier. So the soldier was baffled. He looked at me like he couldn't believe it. And then an officer came by and told, ordered him to do something, get out of there. And I told the officer that he was, what he was doing to the kid and, I was scolding the officer and the officer just kind of nodded and nodded and shook his head and they, they moved on. But I, I wasn't used to seeing that type of um, cruelty. So that, that was, um, I realized how fortunate America and, and what it is, the difference between America and the rest of the world. And where a lot of the, like when you were in Germany, was Germany still, blown to pieces or or were they starting to rebuild at that point? Germany was divided into East Germany and West Germany. Uh, West Germany was modernizing and, and moving forward uh, with a lot of modern and they were cleaning up their cities. East Germany, I went to East Germany too. East Germany looked like the war was still going on. It was, it was cool. Soldiers on every corner, uh, bayonets fixed. Um, the, and the look that they gave you, those soldiers, they were Russian soldiers. They weren't Germans. They were mostly Russians in West Germany. They were German soldiers and American soldiers, but those, right. you, you, you could tell that the war wasn't over as far as they were concerned. Wow. I mean, what a time to go there. And then not to mention forgetting history, the pure wrestling, you must you got to experience, you were over there with the best of the best. How was your wrestling skills at that time compared to the folks you were wrestling from like a Bulgaria or from, uh, from some of those you know, Soviet bloc countries? My school, my, my skills were elementary. I won most of my matches on conditioning and speed over there. They, they were technicians. And the other thing is that officiating was corrupt. If you were from a communist country, uh, and you had a, a communist and most of the officials and judges were from those communist countries. And so they were, they cheated as, as simple as that. You, you had, you just couldn't beat them. It was best to pin them. And sometimes even when you were pinning them, they wouldn't call the fall, but I used to get them so tired. They couldn't do anything. They they'd just lay down on the mat and the rules were different. The rules allowed them to rest. And uh, the referee could let them rest, and and you'd wear yourself out trying to trying to pin them, and then 
you know, in the end, they might score a point or push you off the mat. And you've got <laughs> points of pushing people off the mat. So it, it, it was it was not fair. It, in no in no way were the rules fair for Americans. It's like we think of, we think it's corrupt now, but back then it must have been a whole other degree of corruption. If you go back and look at the uh, skating and the track and field, you can get a good idea of just how corrupt it was. The, the skating and the winter sports, where judgment was the main factor, mm-hmm. that's what it really they just bribe officials and uh, and, and cheat. It was as simple as that. The communist system allowed them and encouraged them to cheat. But they were still superior technically, and that's what we see today. I mean, the crazy thing to me is that Russia, the top country, they've only been in the Olympics since somewhere in the 50s, I think. Um, But, you know, their technique is superior. And so you even saw that in in Bulgaria and other countries there, just another level of, of technique. Well, yeah, you have to remember that Americans only wrestled uh, international style about 10% of their wrestling career. 90% of the time the Americans wrestled folk style, which was collegiate and high school rules. Totally different. Totally different concept. Mm -hmm. The rules determine how you score the points. And oftentimes, we didn't know what the rules were until we got to the tournament and then they'd have a clinic and tell you this is how we're going to score score the matches well they were the only ones that were doing the score in america we only had about three or four officials compared to the 40 or 50 officials that were in the uh, tournament three americans didn't make much difference no (laughs) we didn't they bribed. They brought the wrestlers would lay down for each other and um, throw matches for each other so that uh, uh, it, they could win on what they call the black mark system. Mm-hmm. And that was a very it was a very corrupt way of of cheating, organized cheating. The black mark system is the most bizarre bracketology I've ever read about, and I think it's just so. You know, wrestling is plagued by bizarre rules and, and let's be real, corruption. Even today, there's corruption. I don't know if you watched the U23s earlier this week. There was a blatant <laughs> corruption that happened against an American, Kurt Follett. But um, you think back to the ball drop, that little, when there was a clinch with the ball drop, that was really weird. But the black mark system in the 70s, it's a really interesting way to bracket things and it doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense and it makes it hard to follow. And so you're, you're kind of living through all of this. And, and the one thing I was going to ask you about is what were the race relations like in Eastern Europe at that time, better or worse than the U S race relation. Uh, it wasn't a matter of, there weren't very many black people for them to show racism toward, but they were racist. They were racist against, uh, the Poles were racist against the, the Czechs. The Czechs were racist against the Hungarians. The Russians were racist against everybody. Uh, the Mongolians and the Japanese, everybody was racist against those two Asian nations. China wasn't in the picture. But racism existed, and it, 
was controlled by what they call FILA. The World Wrestling uh, Federation now was called FILA at the time. FILA was one of the most corrupt organizations <laughs> there was. Oh, Kulon yeah. was the head of FILA, and he had what they called the Bureau. Most of the Bureau was there because of bribes. They bribed their way into the Bureau, and then when they got to the Bureau, they would decide on who's going to win what match. The Bureau would decide, and the Bureau would tell the officials how to call the match, and the, the officials would call the match according to the way the Bureau, Fila Bureau, wanted them to call the match. And the Russians paid off the Bureau members so that they could win matches. Frustrating to hear about, um, you know, and, and you mentioned you know, the Japanese countries, or the, the Japanese te- countries, the Japanese team, and from what I understand, you got to wrestle with Yutaki, who a lot of people say maybe the best wrestler of all time. I was with Mike Chapman, and he said that, to his understanding, Yujiro Yutaki never lost. Um, what What do you remember about... He lost? He lost? Okay. He lost. Yojiro Witaki, he lost two matches that I know of. And as far as him being the greatest wrestler of all times, it's toss-up between him and Gable. What makes you say that? I mean, obviously Gable, we know why, but what makes you say that about Yutaki? I I guarantee you that 99% of the people listening to this have never heard that name before. You give us some of his credentials and what made him special. Well, he's a two-time Olympic champion, won one gold medal with one arm, uh, wrestled, uh, never beaten in college. He's three-time NCAA champion, outstanding wrestler, uh, although he did lose one match in America. I never saw it. I just heard about it. But I worked out with him. He was um, had unbelievable speed. He was a hard, hard worker, hard trainer. Um, between him and Tadaki Hata, they helped me more than anyone as a wrestling as a wrestler. And was it technically, or was it a mindset that they taught you, like a different way to technically and physical training we trained hard uh, we, we we trained real hard, real hard. what was I it i won't go into the details well i was gonna say I, I i love the details what was it what was the training day like back then for you guys how how long were you wrestling i mean what was it like we probably averaged uh four hours of hard wrestling every day although our co- in college we were we, our wrestling practice was two and a half hours, maybe. Uh, but we always worked out twice a day. I'd work out with him in the morning and then we'll go to wrestling practice in the afternoon. Um, I, 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 I had to do that in order to, uh, to keep up with, with him. And I knew if I kept up with him, I had a good chance of, of beating everybody in, in the world. Tudaki Hata was, uh, was another one of the people that, uh, uh, I trained with, and he, he, the the three of us, Wataki, Hara, and myself, we we did extra. We didn't just 
do the workouts. We did a lot of extra things, weight training and uh, running and uh, conditioning things. We, we, we did more because it wasn't enough. To, uh, and we weren't just training for the NCAA tournament. We were training for the World Championships and the Olympic Games. Man, and then, you know, Gable had some battles with... Uh, what, what's the, the Japanese wrestler you just mentioned, the second one? The name escapes me. Yojiro Wataki? Yeah. Well, no, the, the other one, not not Yutaki. The Mata? one... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because Gable wrestled him at Tbilisi in 71. No, 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 no. Gable wrestled Masaki Hata. That was Tadaki Hata's brother. Gotcha. Okay. Masaki Hata was the national champion. He was one of the first Japanese national champions. He may have been the first. Masaki may have been the first Japanese national champion. But Oklahoma State grabbed the best, the cream of the crop of Japanese wrestlers and brought them to America. And uh, as a result, I, I think combined, they won about five or six NCAA uh, titles. It's that, it's that samurai culture. And you see it today, even that you're not, not necessarily at the heavier weights, but the lighter weights, Japan does really well still to this day. Yeah. There's another wrestler that we left at Fujita was another Japanese wrestler who wrestled for Oklahoma State. Uh, I, I think altogether they won about eight NCAA titles. The Japanese won about eight NCAA titles, which translated into at least five NCAA championships for Oklahoma State. Was this under Myron Roderick or under Gallagher? Myron Roderick. Pretty cool that he had the foresight to bring over folks from japan that doesn't seem like a very common thing to do especially back in that era when we just got out of a war with the japanese had to be some some stigmas attached to that for those uh those japanese wrestlers unfortunately mr hada tadaki hada's father was the father of japanese wrestling and he was responsible for oklahoma state's uh ability to recruit the Japanese wrestlers. He, his two sons, his two sons came to Oklahoma State. His daughter came to Oklahoma State. So there was that Japanese connection between Oklahoma State and Japan. And as the benefactor, one of the great benefactors of that was the American wrestling program because our technique came up to a very, very high level. Uh, uh, Portland State. University of Washington, uh, BYU, um, all were benefactors of the Japanese wrestling program. All those schools got all Americans from Japan. Of course, the greatest benefactor was uh, Oklahoma State. And you wrestled not only Yutaki, but you also, as you mentioned, wrestled Gable, and you you beat him every time you wrestled him. Um, you you beat him in the uh, sixty eight Olympic team trial. I mean, just at, multiple times you beat him. You were the guy to beat at that weight. But you mentioned that Gable's one of the best wrestlers ever. Why do you say that? And uh, you know what makes you 
I guess, or what memories do you have from from Battle and Gable back in those days? Uh, when you when you wrestle, you you get a feel for who's who's the toughest. He was the hardest trainer. He was the most committed of all the wrestlers that I, I uh, competed against, and he was the toughest because he kept getting better. And he was younger than me, and I I'm my age was starting to show, but speed was a great factor. He was an endurance type wrestler, so the longer the match went, the better he got. I was a finesse type wrestler, and at the end of my career, in the beginning of his career, so I was I was going downhill and slowing down when he was just coming up, and I was hired by Iowa State and the Cyclone Wrestling Club for one reason. That was to help prepare Dan Gable for the 72 Olympic team. And I did that. And what do you think the Russians' perception of Gable was after he won the 71 World Championships in Sofia? Well, the Russians figured out that they better shorten the time of the match. It was a nine-minute a nine-minute match and they, they right after that they start shortening they made sure they shorten those matches because uh in nine minutes gable wore you out he, he well he wore them out he didn't, couldn't wear me out but he wore wore them out in nine minutes he'd have them so tired they couldn't stand up typical change the rules <laughs> and um is the tbilisi story about where you know, Gable got second at Tbilisi in 71, but then in 72, he made the guy quit. Is that fact or fiction? Fact. Hit us with the details on that, Coach. Were you there? No, I was not there, but I saw the films. He broke him. He broke all of them. Well, it was ten, I think it was, nine, it was a nine or ten minute match. In nine or ten minutes, Gable could break most people. I, see, I, saw, I saw him work out with Wayne Wells. I saw him work out with John Peterson. I saw him work out with Ben Peterson. I saw him work out with Chuck Jean. I saw him work out with Chris Taylor. He, he wrestled all those guys. I, I, I used to just shudder when he would work out with those big guys. But <laughs> when it would start, oh, they could go with him until, it, until they got tired, <laughs> and then he'd just wear them out. And he just wouldn't stop. No, that was that was his. That's what made him so tough in a match, is the way he trained. He trained and he trained hard. We trained together. We went up to Rough House Training Camp in the mountains of Pennsylvania, and we we trained together. I wouldn't allow him to out train me. Uh, he if he saw if he saw me running in the morning, he'd go out and run at night. Anytime he saw me running, he'd go run. And uh, I ran twice a day. I know he was running more than that. You ran twice a day? I ran twice. I ran in the morning and I ran in the evening. The matches were, uh, at that time, the matches were like 12 minutes. You could have a 12-minute match. And you couldn't just wrestle to get in shape. You get, you get injured. The more, more, you, more time you spent wrestling, the more chance there was you were going to get injured. So you had to cross-train. Running was my cross-training. And when you were running all those miles by yourself, 
Did your mind ever wander to the matches and did you start to think about, you know, what it would be like to win an Olympic gold medal? I, I did all, all that uh, visualization. I did all the things that were necessary. Always in the back of my mind was uh, somebody's right behind me I, or I'm catching up with the Russian or I'm catching up with the Japanese. I w always had an image in front of me. I was either running ahead or running behind. If I was ahead, I ran at a pace. If I was behind, I increased the pace. Man, I love those the, stories. The mind, yeah, the mind plays a major role in, in all success stories. The mind is a major factor. And the mind is a major factor in preparation. You have to be willing to go beyond the threshold of pain that you feel as you train. You have to be able to go beyond that. And... Um, I realized that when I was training, I, not not just as a um, as a uh, wrestler, but I, in football and baseball, I, I always try to do more than than my opponents. Is that something you just picked up naturally, or have you all, or did someone tell you, hey, maybe it was your first coach in high school? But that's not a that's not a common trait for someone to have. No. I, I realized after my very first high school wrestling match that I had to do more than what I was doing in order to beat uh, the people that I was wrestling against. Our, my first match in high school was against the state champion from uh, from West Virginia. Like Mooney was his name, and uh, he pinned me, and I never got over it. I, I I was very much upset about that, and I, I realized that I had to do more, and I started doing more. I made sure that I, the next time we wrestled that I, I was going to even that score. And I know the, the last thing I want to ask you about in your competitive career, and then I, I have to go, unfortunately. Uh, we could talk about your coaching career at another time if you're open to it. But in terms of your competitive career, um, you were in you know, the 64 and 68 Olympics. Was the 68 Olympics the one where you talk about how some of the African-American athletes wanted to protest and you really, you were, you were kind of conflicted and you didn't know what, what you should do. The 64 Olympics was a, a nightmare or 68 Olympics. The 68 Olympics was a nightmare. The, the opening, we, we trained in Alamosa, Colorado, and uh, at the time, there was a lot of, lot of uh, dissent about the boycott, and uh, the track team, across the, uh, one of the American track teams was in Colorado Springs and uh, Alamosa, were in Alamosa, and uh, they were training at Adams State College, and that's where the wrestling team was training. And every day there was an argument among the athletes on that track team about boycotting the Olympics and uh, the racial situation. And uh, I listened to that in the cafeteria. I, I listened to it in the dorms. And uh, 
th there was a lot of uh, racial tension that was going on. And uh, at the time, the riots were taking place. And so I was conflicted with uh, the fact that, uh, hey, uh, there's a lot of problems. I, I never believed that the Olympics was the place to solve the problems, but I was under a lot of pressure. I became, when they selected me as the captain, those uh, different organizations closed in and they wanted me to boycott the Olympics. I, no, I wasn't going to do it. I wouldn't do it. And, uh, but I was conflicted. And then we, we made a big, big mistake. Now, and I, I, I know the coaches did not realize it, but they made us march in the opening ceremonies. And we had to wrestle a short time after that opening ceremonies. We had to march or we had, we had to uh, compete. We were in, we marched, it must've been six or seven miles uh, in that opening ceremony parade. And we were in the sun all that time. And our athletes, we were standing on the, on the parade ground and athletes were passing out, just dropping like flies. Um, different pro different sports pro track girls were passing out. Uh, I can't remember, but a lot of the athletes were suffering from not only the March, but the heat. And we had to stand on that parade ground for over an hour. And that, when I got done with that parade, I'd lost six pounds on the, just on the opening, in the opening ceremonies. It's like, how hot i mean you're in mexico in the middle of summer the the parade was that i mean we're talking about the fittest athletes in the world and it was that detrimental to the team yeah it was hot <laughs> many of the coaches didn't let their athletes march in that opening ceremony because they knew that they didn't want their athletes out there that long and they knew how long it was going to be our coaches insisted that we all take part in the opening ceremony. And I, I, that was a big mistake. Hmm. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a smart move. And then I know there was also, there was also, uh, some issue of food poisoning. Can you talk about that as well? Oh, I, I'd like not to talk about that. That's the sickest I've ever been in my life. <laughs> I, I, um, ate something that disagreed with me and um i was i was sick for about four or five days and i didn't get a chance to train i was so sick i couldn't train and uh then when i finally was able to get back on the mats i'd lost so much i was dehydrated and had lost so much um fluids i couldn't really perform and then two days later we had the the uh, competition started and um, I was in no shape to, to wrestle, but I had spent what was a lifetime preparing for that uh, Olympic games. And I wasn't going to miss it. I wasn't going to forfeit, but I, uh, I never lost it after that uh, 
68 Olympic Games, I, I never lost another match uh, in competition. I, I drew uh, two matches with the Olympic champion, and that was the end of my wrestling career. And that, I think that's a good a good point to wrap it up because that pain of not you know not being able to perform at your level at the 68 Olympics you said was a big fuel for you as a coach and um if we have the chance to talk again coach Douglas I'd love to just focus on your coaching career as a second conversation because I'm a huge Arizona State fan and you know what you did there <laughs> you know being uh being the national champs in 88 is really unbelievable and something I'd love to learn about so um, we'll have to wrap up for today, but maybe in a few weeks we can catch back up and talk about your coaching career. That's a whole nother story, and I'd be happy to do it. Uh, looking forward to this coming uh, collegiate season. Uh, Kale Sanderson, Zeke Jones, um, Bono. Rob Eider, Chris Bono, uh, all have. Uh, have great futures ahead of him uh, in wrestling. Um, Barry Weldon is on his way over, over to my house in a few minutes, and he and I are going to uh, go out and break some bread. And uh, he's got a youngster coming up that uh, is going to be a pretty good wrestler. I think Barry's on his way here now. But anyway, uh, thanks for the interview, and I, I wish you much success, and I'll be happy to uh, – to, uh, Talk to you again. Thank you, sir. It's been an honor. Have a great day. And all great things must come to an end. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, give us a review, give us a rating, and share this with your friends. It would mean the world to us. Thanks for listening to Wrestling Changed My Life.